Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Philosophy of Sex Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Every now and again, you have the unexpected privilege of experiencing something that moves you, be it a book, a piece of art or music. Something about it expands and challenges your beliefs. Today's guest, Dr. Avie Sekirapolo, is the author of a book that moved me profoundly. In Sexuality Beyond Consent, Risk, Race and Traumatophilia, Avier maintains that society has become overly focused on healing trauma and needs to reroute its attention to what subjects do with their trauma. She calls attention to a series of challenging questions, like why is sexuality beyond consent worth risking? And how does risk become a way of engaging with the opaque parts of ourselves? And in what ways does eliminating risk remove the potential for erotic transformation? I loved many things about this book. It's intentionally provocative and cuttingly critiques status quo ideas about controversial topics of child sexuality, trauma and sadism. RVA draws unexpected links between ideas that are so often seen at odds with one another, like cruelty and care, sadism and ethics, trauma and expansion, and perversion and purity. RVA writes about ideas typically relegated to the morbid, dark and unspeakable and sheds light on their potentially transformative powers, something she refers to as erotic astonishment. Blending philosophy, queer theory, and race theory with her extensive experience and practice as an analyst, she proposes that accepting the strange within, not to master trauma, but to rub up against it, may open people up to encounters with the enigmatic, astounding, and to unique forms of care. RVA trained at the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, where she now teaches psychosexuality and polymorphous perversity. RVA is also on the faculty of a number of prestigious psychoanalytic institutes in the United States. In her book and in this interview, she shares the experiences of her patients that are shocking and touching in equal measure. The book is a risk in and of itself and is written for those willing to experience risk. As such, please be aware Avier and I discuss a range of taboo topics, including rape fantasy, race play, piss play, BDSM, and sexual violence. This is a slightly longer interview than we usually release because there's a lot contained within it. Avier is simply brilliant. Please enjoy our conversation. So where I would like to start, I guess, is with infantile sexuality, because I feel like that lays the foundation for a lot of what kind of follows in the book. So can you explain in 
as relatively simplistic terms as possible what infantile sexuality is and where the ideas behind it have emerged from. This is, it's, um, it's really a very central concept in the book, so it's good to start there. The notion of infantile sexuality, I should say, first of all, it's a term, it's a psychoanalytic term, um, and it comes from Freud. And Freud, in trying to think about sexuality, came up with an idea that he revised multiple times throughout his life. But the basic concept behind it is that children are not just not sexually innocent, but that there is a sexuality that we have from the start. And that that sexuality is not about sexual contact per se, but that it's about an internal state that has several characteristics. And those characteristics are that infantile sexuality is ontologically perverse, meaning that it has to do with all kinds of energies and interests um, that eventually would get as we mature and grow up, Freud said, will mostly get cleaned out of sexuality, like as one becomes, in his mind, ideally heterosexual and sex becomes about procreation, an idea that has been very heavily critiqued, obviously. But he started out with this notion that there's something extremely effervescent and very wide and very expansive about sexuality. And that infantile sexuality had some very particular features. It's not about being connected with somebody. It's not about being close to somebody. It's not even about necessarily about kind of like reaching some pleasure like orgasm does, but it has a very strange economy. It's about experiencing more and more things and things intensifying even to the point of exhaustion. It has to do with the, the wish to look or to be looked at or masochism or sadism or um, all kinds of like weird things. It's not even localized in any part of the body. And you, one might say, really, like children care about that. And that's not exactly what, what he meant by infantile sexuality or the way that we use it. And I use it in the book is to talk about a kind of sexuality that never gets disciplined out of us, that remains with us for the rest of our lives, um, independently of what you're sexual orientation is or what your gender is or what your way of having sex is, that this is always a kind of like something that vibrates in the background and that sometimes comes to the foreground. Um, like, so infantile sexuality is, is mostly about that. Can you give an example to, I guess, help contextualize that for people? So what, what we in psychoanalysis call the infantile sexual like manifest in a variety of different contexts, like, you know, not just in sexual life in terms of like how somebody likes to have sex, but in actually it, it, it inflects every aspect of human experience. Uh, and it's not necessarily always a good thing or a bad thing. So for example, um, like if you think about, think about the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th, you could say, oh, these are people who are out of control, who are trying kind of like it's a it's an attempted coup. But part of what you also see if you pay attention to these people's faces is that they're flushed and there's a lot of excitement about what's happening and a sense of about about triumph. And somebody walks into the Capitol and and defecates on somebody's desk. And you would think, oh, how uncivilized, like this, these people are out of control. But one could also say this is one malignant version, not all versions of it are malignant, one particularly malignant version of something that is very infant, very erotic, sexual, in the sense of like having that energy of 
like intensity and passion and feeling extremely um, entitled to having, to taking, to grasping, to possessing the cruelty of it, the violence of it. There's, we don't usually think of these states as being libidinal states, but they are. If you're thinking with infantile sexuality, the fact that somebody would go and like um, defecate on somebody's desk is not surprising anymore. All of a sudden it makes a lot of sense, even though kind of like in rational life and in terms of how we think about how people function, this does not make sense, but it gives you a way of understanding this kinds of experiences, some of which are extremely destructive and some of which are not. Yeah. I mean, in the book, you talk about Freud's ideas of certain aspects of sexuality, like sadism or masochism, or some of the drives that you're kind of pointing to there being endemic to sexuality as opposed to a, a deviation from that. And I, I loved that idea and the way that you articulated that. So how does infantile sexuality then relate to sort of perversion in, in adult life? <laughs> that, is, that is one of the ways in which kind of like it comes up in a non-malignant way. Uh, so Infantile sexuality kind of like underwrites all aspects of human functioning, but it's specific, specifically uh, easily syndicates with with the erotic. So you might you might there are so many theories in psychoanalysis advocating for a certain kind of like what we think about health or in everyday life, what we think about being a healthy sexual relationship, but thinking with infantile sexuality also permits us to see that there are many ways in which erotic experience manifests, that it plays out in domains that are that one would think are unexpected, um, like masochism and sadism, which Freud says are two of the most important aspects of infantile sexuality. Uh, so this gives us a way to be able to enter conversations about sexual experiences that actually do not follow the usual trajectory of how we think about sex um, and add something about the drivenness of experience. So the sexual drive is very much about is, is very much infiltrated by these kinds of forces. Mm. And I mean, one thing that is very clear in the book is that you're willing to hold space for the expansiveness of that. When did you kind of become curious about more expansive sexual practices, or what was it in you that you think has driven you towards thinking about sex in this in this more expansive way? Mm-hmm. Well, I would I would say more expansive, but also more difficult, uh, because there are several examples that I work with in in sexuality beyond consent that that are quite challenging. They're not just kind of like thrilling extensions of how we think about sexual life, but also locate the the erotic in relation to trauma in ways that can be quite challenging to think about. Um, and you know, I should say I'm a clinical psychoanalyst. I, I kind of like I talk and listen to people for kind of like as part of my everyday um, experience. And it's you know when my job is very particular. It's very interesting and it's extremely intimate in unusual ways. People talk to me about all kinds of things that don't come up in everyday conversation or even with intimates. Um, and that is a, a tremendous privilege. And what that also means is that I get to hear about the sorts of kind of like less openly discussed range of experiences that people have, including fringe sexual interests or fetishes. Or So I work a lot with the queer community. Um, and hear a lot about uh, those kinds of experiences from patients um, and 
I have been wanting to write and speak more openly about the difficulties, um, about how, how difficult it is to think about these things outside of pathology, outside of just repetition. And in my explorations, in thinking about sexuality, I also came to discover something which now seems obvious to me, but it took some time to to be able to articulate and flesh out, which is that uh, that there's a particular proximity between sexuality and trauma, which may feel startling, certainly unexpected uh, for most people. Mm. It's sort of once you confront it, it seems sort of true and accurate, but it's actually allowing yourself to get to that point, I think, is it's an interesting hurdle. And I mean, obviously, you take a pretty non-normative view of how trauma should be approached or dealt with, not just in a psychoanalytic context, but also sort of at a wider social level. So could you explain sort of your view around the cultural landscape surrounding trauma? There's a, a quote at the top of, um, at the start of the book, um, culture is the precaution of those who claim to think thought, but who steer clear of its chaotic journey. And I loved that because I feel like it, it sums it up so beautifully, but if you could provide your summation, that would be great. Sure, sure. Uh, so in, in my field, um, one would think that a psychoanalyst and somebody who works with people trying to help people who are in pain, one of the very dominant models in my field is the idea of trying to cure trauma. Now, to, to be fair, no clinician in their right mind be, believes that trauma can be cured per se. Uh, we all know that trauma changes you. But the way that we are trained, the way that we train our colleagues and the way we sit with patients are premised on this idea that if you do good work and the patient is committed and the treatment goes deep enough, um, trauma can be worked through. And the most uh, common metaphor um, for this comes from the work of a psychoanalyst called Hans Lowold, who says that the goal of clinical work is to turn ghosts into ancestors, meaning that they're still there, you know that things happened, they've affected you, but, but they're not kind of like creeping up on you. Um, they are kind of like more organized, sitting in the background, informing your life, but not quite informing your history, part of your history, but not quite uh, startling you with their presence. But, but the truth is that this, this is not how trauma works. And I, I think it's time for us to move away from this very powerful psychoanalytic and I think also cultural fiction, that there is a way to take something traumatic and turn it into something that is just, and I'm going to say this in a somewhat provocative way, just encyclopedically registered and historically recorded, but no longer eruptive in one's psychic life. In fact, if anything, part of what we are learning through the Me Too movement and the kind of like the gains that have been made around consent and kind of like pushing back against violation is that how you're going to be triggered or what gets activated in the encounter with another person cannot be anticipated ahead of time. However well you're feeling at any one particular moment, however good the treatment you've received. And, and the other, so I, I've come to describe this approach to trauma of imagining that it can be healed or more generally, the, the tendency to want to make trauma disappear um, as traumatophobic. And I'm arguing instead that, in fact, we're, we're drawn back to the sites of our traumatic experiences. 
that we're drawn to touching our wounds, to trying to pick on them, to trying to kind of like scratch the scabs that they have left behind. We want to touch our injuries. And that that is part of human experience and it's part of how um, kind of like we not only feel alive, but also feel present in ourselves. Um, and I, I call that... I call that juxtaposing it with traumatophobia. I call it traumatophilia to talk about to to, to contrast the, the the fear of approaching something that has been difficult with the affinities, the natural affinities, and the forces of attraction to that which has wounded us. Mm. So, how would I mean? One thing you hear about a lot now is sort of um, the idea of a trauma-informed therapist or a trauma-informed yoga teacher or, you know, whatever area it might be in. And I've always found that to be somewhat of like a contradictory concept, right? The idea that the person holding space would be able to anticipate what might trigger trauma for someone. So how would that the idea of being trauma-informed sort of sit within the framework of um, traumatophilia and trauma traumatophobia? Yeah, well, it wouldn't. That's the whole point, that there are now developing, I would call them industries because these are very neoliberal practices, kind of like very much plugged into the cap capitalism of therapy turned into a product that is sold to us with all kinds of promises about what it can deliver, promises that it cannot fulfill, but which are made anyway. And are made, I think, by very um, kind of like well-meaning clinicians too, uh, who are also buying into the idea that trauma can be healed or the notion of reparations, um, as if anything can ever be repaired, as if trauma is not ongoing, uh, as if the kinds of social ills that have created the need for reparations have been fixed. And all we need to do is just let the wound heal uh, when in fact racism and misogyny and transphobia are ongoing and rampant in our world today. Um, so th there is on the, this, this, I think, unwarranted optimism, uh, which borders on, um, I think, delusion uh, that there's a way to extract uh, human pain from the psyche um, and that anybody who is engaged with their pain in, in some particular ways is necessarily pathological. And what I mean by some ways is kind of like I'm speaking about sex because, um, because we have many, many examples of artists, for example, being engaged with their trauma to produce art, to produce a beautiful painting or a poem. And there we appreciate finding trauma in creative expression. But somebody who is having like sexual encounters around traumatic experiences or who organizes their erotic lives in, in the grammar of some experiences that have been wounding is, is likely to be seen very differently. Um, so the question becomes, like how, how is it that um, we are welcoming of trauma that we encounter in some organized form, like in the as a short story, as a novel, um, as a as a piece of music that was inspired by somebody's experience of war or somebody's experience of having been violated? So we are comfortable finding it there but pathologize it when we find it in the domain of the intimate. So in, in the book, I work with a couple of 
uh, different works of art that is, is very, very difficult art and very provocative, challenging. And I, art, it is art that I have come to call somewhat sadistic, in fact, ethically sadistic, because it requires you, if you're going to engage with it, you are required to um, to step out of how you think things work, how we have been told things work around, around in, in one case, erotic relationships vis-a-vis -vis racial trauma, and in the other case, in terms of the Holocaust trauma vis-a-vis -vis the erotic. And you have to do some thinking for yourself that goes outside the lines of how we um, we tend to see trauma working. Yeah, I want to I want to revisit slave play a little bit later, but I think yeah, what you're pointing to there is very interesting that we've sort of created these domains in which there's appropriateness for trauma in one context and not another, or when it can be wielded or not wielded, or who can wield it and who can't wield it. There's quite strong sort of social constructs around that now, and would would that fall into the area of being traumatophobic? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Which may sound paradoxical because kind of like the, these would be all instances of being quite preoccupied with trauma. Uh, so what I call traumatophobic is not the tendency to like not think about trauma, but to the contrary, the ways in which we are transfixed with a discourse around eliminating trauma. And I work with a lot of uh, Black um, feminisms, a, a variety of different black feminisms in the book to, to show that this notion of a subject of, of th th this fantasy, that there is an intactness to our being from which, which trauma interrupts and to which we will hopefully can be delivered back to if we receive the right treatment, the right intervention, the right uh, analytic in psychoanalysis, certainly there's a lot of um, uh, talk about that and not not just in psychoanalysis, as you were pointing out, um, that there's a way to drain that from the psyche. Uh, so one of the questions that we may want to ask is, who, whose fantasy is it that human beings are unbroken and deserve to be unbreakable? And who are those subjects who have historically enjoyed that fantasy and created all kinds of violence to violences to support it. And in, in some ways, I would say that this is a very white fantasy, this fantasy of intactness and of unbrokenness. Uh, so one, one of the things that I tried to talk about in the book is how the, the fear that we have about approaching states that are intense is also the fear about being overwhelmed. And I quite paradoxically argue for the transformational possibilities of becoming overwhelmed rather than guarding the self and trying to prevent having too much feeling like living a more aseptic and anemic life as as a number of social forces uh, want us to uh, such that we do not encounter anything new about ourselves or each other. And I mean, the resistance to that is a fairly well-established psychoanalytic fact, but also more broadly, just a fact of human nature, I think, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it works so, well for a variety of different conservative forces. Uh, like mm -hmm. capitalism uh, works excellently. Like it's easier to go on Amazon and buy things than to be present with one's experience. And I, I, one of the surprising things that I'm saying is that some types of thinking 
the ones that are most dominant right now about trauma, not only in psychoanalysis, but also in other clinical domains are very allied with that project of shutting us down from ourselves, even as they don't think of themselves as such uh, and have become quite conscripted to like the, the neoliberal logics of offering us fantasies of perfection, of perfect restoration or being able to return some to some pre-traumatized self. I mean, that, that never happens. Like nobody, I've never seen a patient get cured of their trauma. None of my colleagues have. That doesn't mean that things cannot be done done vis-a-vis -vis trauma. But one of the big claims in the book is that we need to become less preoccupied with what to do about trauma and to become more interested in what people do with their trauma. That that makes complete sense to me. I guess from the psychoanalytic standpoint, why are people drawn to to their trauma, even when they're sort of drawn to it in a way where they're trying to get rid of it, there's obviously still some kind of magnetism or attraction there, irrespective of what yeah. outcome they're trying to, to achieve. So what are the processes driving that? There's a couple of different reasons. Uh, the first is that um, we are, in, in the psychoanalytic theory that I work with in this book, we, we are constituted through trauma. We come into being um, through being exposed to things as, as infants that are beyond our understanding and that have to do with what others bring to us, which is beyond what we can master or process developmentally or psychically. So our life starts out with this strange tangle between trying to make sense and to some degree making sense of some things and then always playing catch up with that which is in excess of what we can manage uh, that comes to us from the other. You might, you might say, now this is a very different model, I should clarify, from thinking that we are born intact and then something traumatic happens that interrupts us and injures us. And therefore there was a pre-traumatic self. Um, rather, this, this way of thinking starts out with a premise that it is the very fact of this intrusion, necessary and inevitable intrusion by the other, which developmentally we can never manage, that puts in motion the whole process by which you end up developing a self and developing an unconscious and developing parts of who you, kind of like how you come to feel, to have a home in yourself. Um, so if, if we start with a premise that trauma is the originating condition, of how we come to be uh, who we are, then the question is less about how do you get rid of it, but it's impossible to extract it from the psyche. But in some way, like that sits at the epicenter of your being. Um, and, and there are, when we're not anesthetized um, by the, the multiple stimuli in our lives, that the, the multiplicity of what's going on around us, which tells us to not think and to not be present. Um, we yearn, we are drawn to make contact with parts of ourselves that are quite opaque to us. And there's something both exhilarating and frightening about that kind of contact. Um, and that, that opacity, that constitutional um, sense of not quite the things we don't know about ourselves that we can never know that always exceed us um, um, are, as, as I was just describing, very much threaded through trauma. So any new experience of trauma that we have um, that is not ontological, but contingent, meaning like some people 
um, undergo traumatic experiences of violence or of rape or ongoing microaggressions that basically lead up to macroaggressions uh, or that or cumulative effects of small t trauma that eventually kind of like accumulates to capital T trauma. Um, all, all of these end up having some connection with the originary trauma that we had such that they both wound us, but they also become folded into, they, they develop some proximity with the originary trauma. So making contact with that trauma is also the place where we feel most alive. So think, for example, about kind of like two people who have undergone a traumatic experience together, even a traumatic experience that one may have undergone with somebody who inflicted the trauma on them creates a particular kind of intimacy, which can be very strange. And I say the word intimacy, not to say that it's good or to diminish the harm. There are varieties of connections, including connections that are forced upon us, that forge intimacies between people that can be very difficult, but also very powerful. And this is perhaps at some point, if we end up talking about slave clay or the night porter, we might we might think a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. One one question that sort of comes up for me from that is with with the unknown self. Is that the result of repression, or is it is it that there is some innate part of us that is always unknowable to us? That's that's an excellent question, uh, especially coming from somebody who's not a psychoanalyst. You're like, that's exactly the right question, uh, because we th- there's always a part of us that we will never know that has never been known to us and we will never know. And the point is not to try to know it, but there's something about being in, in, in its proximity or in its presence um, these are experiences of the uncanny that we may sometimes have, experiences of the sublime being before something that feels like it's too big for us, it's of us, but it's not from us. Um, and we are, we can become very curious about these kinds of experiences, very drawn to them, very exhilarated by them. And they can also be quite frightening um, or at times make us feel like we want to recoil. Mm. Mm. And I mean, that's why I like your work so much because it's so embracing of of that risk factor, I guess. Um, I listened to an, another interview with you and you sort of described approaching trauma in, the, in this particular way in relation to sex. You were almost encountering the most uncoated version of sexual drive as there can be. And I really liked that as a way of articulating it, it feels quite validating to me because I'm, that's sort of how I move through the world. I like to be at the edges, but for someone that that sort of approach might not feel as instinctual for, can you make the case for engaging with trauma and sexuality in, in that way? Well, um, one could, but I wouldn't. Um, I think that this is not about um, pushing anybody or pressing anybody, or certainly not forcing anybody to engage with that. Uh, I think that this draw exists in all of us, but who is willing to tarry in that interval and who is more cautious about stepping into that domain, these are things that need to be respected. Um, If anything, uh, it's not about talking anybody into it. More than anything, it's about seduction. And I use seduction here in the psychoanalytic sense of um, not of misleading somebody or tricking somebody, but 
oftentimes we go to places that we might have not gone under other circumstances because we feel enticed by a relationship or enticed by a person or enticed by a part of ourselves that we are in some almost non-consensual relationship with. Um, and that's that's one of the big roles that consent plays in this book to say that risking these kinds of states and these kinds of experiences does not happen without consent. And here by consent, I don't mean without I don't mean to imply that it happens non-consensually, like somebody's forced or something is done against one's will, but to say that I, I talk about consent as something that also there's an is also an internal experience, not just an interpersonal one. That to some degree in the encounter with with something opaque in ourselves, something that excites, but also that thrills, but also um, kind of like make us feel like we want to close up. Um, if one is to step into that territory and take the risk, it happens at the border of, of the ego's consent. It has to be wrested from ourselves every time. Um, and again, I'm talking about the internal relationship that we have with this encounter with something unexpected or something surprising, like safety can do all kinds of important things in a relationship. And it is it is necessary. We need to feel safe. But but, but transformational experiences are not a result of, of safety. Transformational experiences only arise in the in the friction zone with something one did not anticipate in the riptide of the of the drive, the riptide of the sexual. Mm. Yeah, I like I like that way of putting it. And I think this is kind of a good point to transition into talking about consent more broadly. So um, I wanted to start by talking a bit about affirmative consent and sort of your views around the the shortcomings of it. I've interviewed a few people on the show now that have talked about the issues with affirmative consent, but I think you go a little bit further than some of the people that I've spoken to do in the sense that you are introducing this idea of limit consent and you're actually starting to build not quite a framework, but almost um, an idea of how people could behave, which I thought was really interesting. So can you take us through the issues of affirmative consent as you see them? Sure. Let me first say that it is very important to remember that affirmative consent is something that the feminist movement has fought for very, very hard, and that there is a reason why it's been so vociferously defended and why it has been necessary. But with these gains in place, um, not that they are in place, and that, I mean, they're being fought over all the time, but even with, let's even take an imaginary society where kind of like affirmative consent has been established, that there are certain very, very important issues with the way in which affirmative consent imagines a subject who is transparent to herself, who knows what she wants, what she does not want, and who then is able to chart ahead of time the parameters of whatever sexual encounter she might have with another. Um, it, it demands in our communications, affirmative consent, that is, demands in our communications, like a kind of linear, uh, clear, crisp um, exchange. But this is not how psychic time works. Oftentimes, you don't know if you want something until after you've started experiencing it. Um, and then by that time, it's too late to withdraw your consent. Like, for example, this happens in the clinic all the time. Like legally, 
patients are required to consent to treatment. Otherwise, you can't treat patients. Again, there's their consent. But the truth is that however careful one tries to be, um, a, a patient, any of us, do not know what we're getting into when we enter an encounter with another. Um, so I, I speak in the book, I give the example of a patient who came to see me, um, found herself very interested in working with me uh, after the first meeting and then asked me about my fee. I told her my fee. She told me she could pay it financially. She could afford it, but she didn't want to. And she felt quite upset that she now felt that she had been tricked by me, that if she had known my fee ahead of time, which she had not asked about on the phone, um, if she had known, she said to me, she would never have come to see me. And she would not now be finding herself in the very uncomfortable position of wanting to work with me and having to pay me this amount that she otherwise would not have paid. So... You know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting conundrum because this patient did not want to leave. She she did feel that I had, and this is her word, that I had screwed her. Um, but she did not want to leave. What she wanted to do was for me to acknowledge that I had screwed her. And, and she was, part of what I say in the book is that she was not right because I was not trying to screw her or trick her or, but she was also not wrong in the sense that our encounter opened up an appetite in her for some something from me, something she felt she could get from me, that she hadn't, that an appetite that was not roused before our contact. And in that sense, I was like, what, what could I have possibly said to her ahead of time to for her to have affirmatively consented? Could I have said, you know, you may come in and find out that you want to work to me too much and you will not want to pay the amount that that it will cost? Uh, what? How, how exactly do we imagine we could have anticipated that ahead of time? Like a patient says, kind of like, is this the kind of thing that could hurt me? Like, I, I don't know. Like any any treatment will cause some pain. Is, is it going to be too much? You will only know when you get there. By that time, it's too late to withdraw your consent. So psychic life does not learn on this chronological timeline. So that's kind of like the temporal frame of consent is all off. Um, the, the other thing that I would say about consent is that it imagines, I think quite problematically, that there's one paper person with power, all the power, who kind of like presents the conditions of kind of like whatever the contract, so to speak, of the encounter will be. And the other person who has no power needs all the information in order to make an informed decision. Uh, if, even if we put aside the issues of, of temporality that we're talking about just now, what is this condition? There's very few conditions in life where one person has all the power. Um, it, it, even if we talk just about positional power, there's all kinds of others, powers that have to do with um, of like um, who feels vulnerable to whom, who needs what from whom. So part of the pressure that I try to put on the concept of affirmative consent is to say that this, the perspective of one person possesses the information that needs to be shared and the other person and is is, is given is propo proposes a contract that the other person agrees to or not misunderstands the the multiple layers of vulnerability that occur in the encounter between two people um so one one of the examples that i bring up um 
in the book is is a is a play sequence between a mother and a child. I love that analogy. It's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in in that story, the the mother is playing with the child. The child has a certain game in mind. The game is that the mother will scare her. When she says stop, the mother will stop. They play that back and forth again and again and again for a few times. And then the little girl says, we'll play a different game. I'll tell you to stop, but you won't stop. So I, I, I never say in the book what the mother decides to do. Um, but I take that as an opportunity to think a little bit about what is the girl asking? Um and what would it mean for the mother to participate in that new contract, so to speak? Uh, the, the idea that, so we begin to see that in this kind of situation, if the mother is going to play along, she will also have to relinquish a couple of different things. First of all, her wish to keep her daughter safe. The safest thing to do is to not play this game. If she's going to play this game, she knows that there's a risk that something could go wrong, right? So she will have to, take the risk of entering a game with unpredictable effects. Now, you may say she shouldn't play this game, which is fine. But what I'm trying to say is that if she's going to play it, all of a sudden, this either or of consent, of power of consent does, does not, kind of like begins to fray. And the other thing that you will have to kind of, um, the other risk that you will have to take is that if she hurts her daughter, she, she's also going to be hurt. Like she's also going to be losing sleep over them. So she has to take a couple of different risks. And I I begin to flesh out this type of consent by calling it limit consent, which rather than a consent that is about negotiating safety, limit consent is about beginning to negotiate around the limits of what it means not to stay safe, but to take a risk with each other. Mm. One question that I had that's sort of coming up around that, and I'm going to try and phrase this as tidily as I can, <laughs> thinking on the spot about it. Obviously, what you're describing there is, is a, it's a more empowering framework for both parties, right? Because there's, there's sort of a mutual responsibility and culpability, I guess. Do you feel that there is some link between the sort of trauma obsession that you describe and the disempowering nature of how we have framed affirmative consent where there is someone with power and someone without? Is there a link there? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great, that's a great question. Um, let me qualify this by, by saying first that, you know, consent violations happen. So I, I can understand the need for it. And people do get traumatized over boundaries being crossed that they had never wanted to be crossed. That said, we have become so scared and so panicked about trauma in general that the possibility that a, that a bad experience will ensue in, in a well-meaning encounter between two people because something got out of hand, because somebody didn't, didn't read the other person well. It's like we're kind of like hijacked by that and immobilized. So stepping into that territory does require, as, as you very rightly pointed out, however asymmetrical the situation might be, as all situations are, there's like it's a very rare situation to have symmetry of power in, in an encounter. However asymmetrical the situation might be, th there is a degree of responsibility that both members carry 
into this kind of encounter when we're talking about adults and when we're not talking about relationships of care. Um, so, you know, sometimes kind of like I, I had a patient once I, I mentioned this case in the book who, who, who inquired about whether, how likely was it that they were going to be hurt by the treatment? And the answer is, it depends what you mean by hurt, because a treatment that goes deep enough will raise some difficult things. And paradoxically, it's part of my job to actually create the conditions for that to be possible, um, right? Which It's a very strange way to think about care, but it is a very important facet of care. So is, is, it, is it reasonable to be having a conversation with this patient about whether they can consent to the kind of pain that, that it will be caused to them. Well, theoretically, yes, but practically like, good luck with that. Like what exactly are you going to be kind of like disclosing you, you yourself don't know how it's going to play out. Um, but what this means is that why, where is the, the, the relationship between us is asymmetrical and I have a responsibility for their well being that, that is my, um, my, my duty. And they don't have a responsibility for my well-being. It, it, this is also not a situation of a mother and a child who walks into, who, who is completely dependent on a parent. Um, and this is not to license the violations that can and do sometimes happen in treatments. It's only to say that human relationships are much more complex and cannot be legislated on the level of, by drawing these firm lines, and if you do legislate them that like that, what you miss out on, this is one of the big points in the book, is, is the intensity of experience at the core of one's being. Um, part of what can happen when you don't say things that are in the books or in workshops or when you don't relate to each other according to how we're told like, a woman is supposed to relate to a man or how a, 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 a trans woman is supposed to relate to a cis person. The room opens up for intimacy in a way that is not safe, but which can be incredibly deep in an entirely different way. Mm. I want to think about this in a few different contexts, right, to see how it sort of plays out. Where I thought it might be interesting to start is in the area of sort of BDSM and kink, because obviously there's all sorts of different consent frameworks that have been developed as part of those communities, like safe, sane, consensual, or RAC, risk-aware, consensual kink, which have all been, you know, debated at length for their sort of strengths and weaknesses. Um, I was sort of curious about how you would see those models fitting within this. Yeah, how it, how it relates to limit consent, I guess. I, I think that um, limit consent would be much more compatible with thinking with the RAC model than the SSC model, which also feels like a very defensive model to me. And I'm certainly not the only one to, to be saying that, like this whole idea of like safe, sane and consensual is uh, Laura Antonio has like a, a, a really um, good way of phrasing it somewhere. She, she says, it's like, how would it sound if the gay movement movement's motto was um, not after your kids. <laughs> um, like, you know, what, what does it mean to be leading with a negation of like, we know that this is what you're afraid of and this is not what we are. So the parallel that she's drawing there is that to, to, to have the emblem of the kink movement being we are safe, we're sane, and we're not 
raping or abusing each other is, is more about speaking back to the fears directed at the king community and probably also existing within the king community as a result of these anxieties rather than um, speaking to what kind of what the community is about. Um, but but you see, even in spaces like kink, where there are well-developed protocols for how to engage sexual experiences that that play with risk, that play with trauma, that kind of like move on the edge of something intense happening and actually chase that edge. Um, the anxiety about consent is, is tremendous, even though there's also ways in which the kink community, some aspects of, the, of kink communities make a lot of room for, for errors and for the ways in which things can go right between two people without necessarily assuming bad intent. Um, and one of the um, one of the points that I tried to make in the book, not specifically about the King community, but it would apply there too, is that entering the domain of limit consent, um, where there is an understanding that there is some risk that is engaged, um, requires an ethical kind of sadism. Um, and I, I juxtapose that sadism, you were speaking about the king community to stay with that for a second with the very as if mimetic and ultimately infirm sadism in the king community where it's it kind of like it's a it's a playful but also not uh, kind of like solidly um, sovereign sadism. Uh, so we have as a culture been quite terrified about thinking about sadism. It has not, sadism has not enjoyed the same, same level of critical attention as masochism has. There's been so many books written about masochism, trying to nuance the concept, trying to complexify the concept. Sadism has kind of like really lagged behind in thinking about it critically. So at the moment we have like two major um, kind of like streams of thinking. The one is just coming from BDSM theory and it's this form of, you know, of like I'm, I'm the sadist, but kind of like I'm the big bad wolf and you're going to say no and like, okay, but I'm not the big bad wolf. So, you know, it's kind of like very as if and very playful and it kind of like loses its proximity to sadism versus what we think about as sadism in everyday life, which is this kind of like notion of destructive, really... Um, person obliterating, um, hurtful, intentionally damaging sadism. And, and we need a way of being able to think about how people move into these spaces of limit consent, taking both the risk and the responsibility of being the person who is entering these spaces, knowing kind of like that power is not either or, but also taking responsibility for the asymmetry in the relationship. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I think the thing that comes up for me when you're talking about that is that obviously there's degrees of trust that have to be foundational to that in order for it to function. So the other context that I was curious to hear your thoughts on how it would play out is more casual contexts or in a one-night stand or where there's not that foundation of knowing and trust can limit consent kind of function in those spaces or or how would it ideally function in those spaces, I guess? This is this is an excellent question. And I would start with saying 
before we go to the more casual, every kind of like less less weighted uh, encounters, I would say that the kind of sadism that I'm talking about is an ethical kind that respects the other's subjectivity and which recognizes the vulnerability also of the sadist, and the in the sense that the sadist is is in a vulnerability. The risk that the sadist takes is not just with the other person's safety; it's also with oneself. If we go back to the example of the mother and the child, if the mother steps into that space of that game, she would be the sadist. She was she's going to be the one who's disrespecting her daughter's no, as her daughter asked her to. But but she also has to manage something in herself to be able to do that, right? So I I, I want to go to your question though about kind of like the question of trust. Um, I, I think I think that your question is very important uh, because it points to something that is very tricky, which is that one could say, well, maybe you need enough affirmative consent to build a relationship of trust so that you can then risk something. And that is definitely the case in some situations. Um, in fact, in this example with a child and the mother, I say exactly that. She's listened to her so precisely. The mother has listened so precisely every time she said stop that now the girl can afford to wanting to invite her into something else that's more risky. But I also talk in the book about another kind of encounter about uh, Tim Dean, this queer theorist who writes about his experience of following this stranger. Uh, he's in a gay bar, in a leather bar. Tim Dean talks about having been a piss top for, for a while, having enjoyed the experience of piss play, but never having bottomed. And this guy takes him to the back. And as Tim Dean is, is basically giving him a blowjob, he realizes that this guy's pissing in his mouth. They have not discussed it. There's been no affirmative consent. This guy has really taken a risk. You could say this guy's violating him. But that is not how Tim Dean experiences it. In fact, he says that the moment he realized that this guy was, he said he he describes in this paper, which is called The Art of Piss, he describes having felt the warm fluid and realizing, wow, this guy's like pissing in my mouth. And then paradoxically, he he names having had the most spectacular orgasm ever. And he has this beautiful line, I think very moving line where he says, that night, this man, the stranger, gave me the gift of erotic astonishment. Now, that gift of erotic astonishment is not conditioned by safety. It happens unexpectedly, perhaps un it comes unbidden and, and likely uncourted un um, by either of them. It just arrives precisely at the juncture of, of of a non-consensually negotiated experience, which is also not a violation. And the tricky part is, one of the many tricky parts is that if he had, he meaning if he if Tim Dean had said, had stood up and said, how dare you? Like, I never said you could piss in my mouth. I would certainly not be blaming him for this. I would be saying, I get it. Like if he said I was traumatized, like I was I was just giving this guy a blowjob and all of a sudden he's pissing in my mouth, I feel violated. I would say, I get it. I understand it. And when he says, but this was an erotically astonishing experience, I understand that too. And that is precisly the risk of, affirm of, of uh, limit consent. The risk is that you don't know how it's going to go until after the fact. But the responsibility of the ethical sadist is to stick around 
and bear the responsibility of what he has provoked, even as he's not guilty for it. Guilt is not the same thing as provocation. So does he have, a, does, does the stranger, if, if Tim Dean had gotten really upset and he had freaked out, would the stranger have a responsibility for that? Absolutely. Absolutely, he would have a responsibility for that. And, and this is part of, so you might say like, so this, here's an example where you have like a really casual scene, right? It's a pickup scene. It's not even a negotiated scene. And it, it, it happens to go really well. That nobody's traumatized. Nobody's upset about it. It could have gone in a very different direction. But part of what I'm trying to say is that trust may or may not have something to do with it. Mm, yeah. And I mean, that's a very um, radical kind of concept, <laughs> which I, you know, it's it's provocative and I, I love it, but it, it is definitely um, a radical one. I mean, what you're raising there is that people have an intuitive sense of what is ethical for them and what is not ethical for them, I guess. Perhaps, not necessarily, not necessarily. Mm. Like another example Here's an example of something that is very, very negotiated and very affirmative, uh, but which goes in the opposite direction. Like I, um, I talk, I start the book with the example of a patient of mine who is has really negotiated a sexual encounter with her uh, lover, with her female lover, and the encounter is a slap, and she, her partner slaps her, and my patient says to me, "This slap." was so much more than what I expected. It was the right force, the right part of my face, the right expression on her face. I I didn't expect an exquisite slap. I expected a, a really mediocre slap. And she safe words. She safe words, not because the other person violated her, but because the very thing that they negotiated turned up to be so much more than what she expected that she cannot bear that in herself. So she stops this scene, not because the other person crossed her limits, but because the experience that the other person, that the encounter with this other person produced crossed her own internal limits, even as the other person didn't violate them. So here you have kind of like kind of the opposite example, like affirmative consent is there, but but the unexpected arises and this particular individual is unable to give herself over to the surprise and to the excitement and the thrill and the sizzle that comes from that moment. And what she does instead is she recoils. Um, so, I mean, I, I wish I could, I could, I could lean or trust that there's something intuitive. We all know in some sense, and we just need to be in touch with our intuition. But I think that there are so many more factors that go into these kinds of experiences. Like this happened to be a really exquisite experience. And that's not what she thought she was signing up for. She wanted something more manageable. Um, so you see like this, these are all different and surprising and unusual examples but telling examples of how affirmative consent falls short and how much more complicated the scene of the erotic is. Mm. So you propose this concept of overwhelm in the book and and describe it in a, in a really wonderful way. So could you take me through your definition of, of overwhelm? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I was uh, referencing earlier in our discussion, this came up in relation to how in the effort to protect ourselves from becoming traumatized, we, it, it, we've taken it as a given that if one is to become overwhelmed, that's a bad thing. And the unexpected position that I take in this book is that overwhelm is something that can also crack open the, um, the more established and perhaps calcified parts of ourselves to allow something new to happen. And that that, again, will not happen with the ego's consent, meaning that um, we will resist something cracking open in us, even as we may yearn for it or may enjoy it or appreciate it after the fact. Um, and that there are experiences where something becomes more and more intense, where we become overwhelmed and give a couple of examples in the book of um, clinical cases. And kind of like I talk about my own experience of overwhelm with, uh, with a play that I became quite transfixed and obsessed by um, to, to show how experiences of becoming overwhelmed, if not stopped, but allowed to escalate. And if one throws oneself into these kinds of experiences, something can really um, become transformed in one's sense of oneself, one's relationships with, with others, um, rather than guarding the self and trying to preserve the self so that nothing gets challenged these kinds of overwhelm, like the, the the rupture of the ego, the the shattering of the self, can can put oneself in the presence of the drive, in the presence of the of the opacity of the sexual, in a way that can be not only meaningful, not only turn out to be meaningful after the fact, but really enlarge the the scope of experience, open one up to feeling things differently experiencing things at a different level. Mm. It, that makes sense to me. I think one important thing um, that you touch on in the book is sort of the, the differentiation between overwhelm and dysregulation. And you talk about sort of unlike malignant dysregulation, overwhelm is a driven state that issues from within an attuned dyad. So I liked this idea of the attuned dyad. Can you, can you explain what that means and, and how you think about the difference between dysregulation and, and overwhelm? Yeah, I, I think that part of that also connects with the question that you had earlier about affirmative consent. Um, to go back to the piss play example, even though this was a stranger, we can assume that enough was well enough matched between these two men that there was not a tremendous amount of fear that something harmful could be done. Enough for tempting to follow the stranger to the back of a, of a dimly room and, and put his penis in his mouth and start giving him blowjob, right? In therapeutic fields and psychoanalysis in particular, there's a lot of concern about dysregulation. Like what if the patient gets dysregulated? We need to make sure that the patient is regulated. What if, um, kind of like what happens in um, patients' relationships with their parents, with their partners? Um, dysregulation is treated as an index of something going wrong. And but what if some of these dysregulations are also indications that something is opening up or something is becoming in intensively engaged in ways that one might not feel comfortable with or might look bizarre or strange from the outside? Um, 
what what if we became a little bit less traumatophobic um, and rather than try to shut these states down, we allowed them to escalate to, to their magnificent intensities to the extent that they might break something down um, in the self. And, and when I say we allow, I'm talking about ourselves. I'm not talking about trying to do that to another person. Uh, one, even, even an ethical sadist does not do this to anyone. They provide the conditions for that to become possible, but it's not about imposing it on somebody. Mm. And I mean, one thing that came up for me when I was sort of reading your description of overwhelm was sort of, again, to relate it back to kink community, the idea of sort of subspace and that what I've heard described of that felt sort of like there were similar currents through it. Would you agree with that, that it's sort of an almost like an altered headspace? It's definitely an altered headspace. And in keeping with what I'm saying also about ethical sadism, I think it also has to do with top space not just uh, bottom space, not just uh, subspace, uh, kind of like these altered states that kind of like some people in the after, in their aftermath describe having been transformed by them, um, not just having a very intense experience. For some people, it's just a very intense experience and that's that's fine. But some people feel really altered by these experiences. And the when they are when these experiences are endured together, with another person in the presence of another who's also undergoing an experience of this sort. The intimacy that can develop in these spaces is, is of a very different order um, to have stepped into the fray together um, and to have been in that, in, the, in that intense vibration together can leave people feeling very, very connected to each other, but not, not necessarily in the sense of closeness or a bond, even though that too might happen, but as having undergone something together in a way that can be extremely meaningful. Yeah, I mean, it, in one point, you're sort of talking about the word perversion and sort of your preference to it over other other words like kink or things that sort of often surround that space because it sort of encompasses the transgressive more sufficiently. And you talk about this idea of inter-embodied processes within that or sort of this somatic communication that is without language like that's something that's very appealing to me that there's this space where sort of language isn't sufficient um, and that there's something that is bigger than that. Another reason why affirmative consent fails. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I very much sort of felt that and I, I like how you then tie that into sort of feeling a sense of wonderment. So can you sort of, can you describe the link between those two things from sort of perversion to wonderment might sound like two very juxtaposing kinds of, ideas but can you kind of explain how one potentially gives rise to the other yeah i mean potentially is a key word here of course because you know there, there are no recipes for these kinds of experiences and in fact the more one tries to have them the less likely one surrenders to whatever current might move one there but um, key, key to perversion and to also some of the aesthetic experiences that i talk about in the book is is their intensity their intensity with Hatch to do with both kind of like the physical intensity, but also the intensity between people. Uh, the fact that they can feel bombarding in the sense that they become overwhelming. And it is precisely because they become overwhelming that they can 
kind of like bring one to that state of like the shattering of the self and the transformational experiences that we we're talking about earlier. So uh, in, in some ways, the book is very much an argument for reconsidering our relationship to intensity and our fear of intensity um, and our, and our uh, I think, facile conviction that intensity necessarily means trauma, even though there's no question that intensity can be re-traumatizing in some way. Um, and to become curious about the, the, the ways in which people dabble in the domain of traumatic experience. And um, the when, when I talk about race play in the book, I, I kind of like make a beeline for one of the most difficult traumas to talk about, especially right now in America, which is racial trauma. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what you say about sort of racial trauma and its links to slavery and, and how that plays out? I mean, I, I work with a variety of different materials in the book. I work with Jeremy O'Harris's play called Slave Play. I work with an interview that I had with a Black race play activist and also with some materials from Melina Williams's documentary and interviews. Melina Williams and the Black activists I interviewed are both um, kind of like pioneers in the race play movement. Um, and these are like a race play for, for listeners who are not familiar with it is a particular kind of niche um, edge fetish, um, it, which is very established in queer community, in kin communities where it is also controversial. Um, um, which involves the the play with racial stereotypes and the use of racial expletives as uh, part of um, sexual play, and it's it's perverse in the ways that I use the word perversion in the book to talk not about pathology but to talk about intense um, erotic pursued erotic excitements um, that kind of like are both scripted and repetitive. And, and I work with race play because I think that contrary to many other erotic interests, it is so challenging and it poses so many important questions about the entwinement of the, the gnarled entwinement of racial trauma and racial violence with sexual experience that if, if you're not going to dismiss it outright, and start saying that people should not be doing that as, as is certainly done by uh, kind of like in this domain, then you're gonna have to think beyond the platitudes and the habits of our thinking to try to understand what might be happening. What, what, what do we make of desires that syndicate something extremely historically injurious and which is blistering through the present in the sense that of course racism still exists in our everyday and which now appears in a heated way entwined with sexual life and so I, I track these examples to to argue that there are many ways to understand human agency um, and there are many ways in which we have we treat traumatized subjects and especially um, subjects of color as having restricted agencies on account of their trauma and do not permit that agency arises in different and and, and, and at times unexpected and um, bizarre forms. 
Um, and I, I use the example, there's a quote from Mike Bond, one of the people, the, the person that I interviewed uh, for, for this book who approaches me to talk about race play and he wants to speak with me. Um, and I, he gives me an interview and he's describing about how in, in the BDSM scene, there's, there's not much critique against rape play. Um, he actually describes a, a scene that he walks into in a BDSM club where uh, a man has written, he says, every misogynistic slur on a woman's body in a scene that is negotiated and it's, it's a public rape play scene. And he says to me, but nobody stops the scene to run in and ask him if he has anger issues or to talk to her about feminism and to ask her if her mother is okay with this. But if I, when I would do a race play scene in a public space, he says, like, I, I cannot do that without people coming up to me and talking to me about racism, talking to me about how they should not have to watch this. Like, do my do I have a note from my pastor or my ancestors? Uh, are my ancestors okay with me doing race play? And, and he says something really striking. He says that he he says um, he, he says I am not in the dungeon for my civil rights. I am in the dungeon for my boner justice rights. <laughs> Which is a really interesting way of showing the how the the erotic is embroiled with justice, not in the d- domain only of rights or dignity, but that that paradoxically also arises through the resource in this case of erotic humiliation. And he, here is one very powerful example of how we don't like to find trauma in sex. Sex needs to be cleaner, especially the kind of of, of trauma that makes white people anxious because of our complicity, because of our ongoing engagement uh, with racist practices and our ongoing uh, benefiting of race from racism um, in everyday life. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very strong example around sort of a person's right to choose their subversion, I guess. <laughs> and then how, yeah, how do you navigate with that within a within a public domain and a, and a public space? which is a whole, you know, that's a whole nother podcast episode in and of itself. <laughs> but I suppose where I kind of want to end things is is on the note of your book feels like such a strong invitation to reconsider risk and um, notions of safety and, and, and all of these things. And so without being prescriptive, I wondered if you had any thoughts around how people can start to reconsider these concepts or play with them if that's something that they're curious about? You know, I um, I don't have anything to say about that other than the following. Anybody who's interested, anybody whose curiosity is piqued by these ideas, by this discussion, by, by this book, needs to kind of like think, think out something with themselves. Um, I, I, I take away when I said to you earlier that this is not about getting anybody to do anything, that we have to respect people's preferences and defenses and where they feel safe. Like I take that very seriously. Um, if anybody wishing to explore these areas needs to do that of their own accord and of their own will. And the worst thing I think to do would be to try to do that as a recipe or as a kind of like, Kind of like, 
I, I say, uh, when I say that it's not a how-to, I don't just mean this in the sense of don't do this at home. <laughs> uh, what I'm also trying to say is some really personal decisions and really personal risks that one takes with their whole self. So it can't be somebody else's um, idea or thought, except when it's an inspiration or a seduction in, in the way that we were talking about earlier. Certainly not as um, a recipe or a recommendation. No, I like I like the idea of seduction a lot. And I think my mm-hmm. even asking that question affirms your point that we have a desire to <laughs> find answers. <laughs> That's my own nature coming through there. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex and a huge thank you to Avier. Head to the show notes for more information about her book. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcho for editing this episode and writing the music. If you like what you're hearing or have a question, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.